you have your Bibles with you, you can turn to the book of Acts. Chapter 6 is where we're going to be. We're going to cover all of chapter 6 today because it's pretty short. Also, it sets the, sets the stage for what happens in chapter 7. If you don't have your Bible, it's okay. It'll be on the screen behind me. I'm using the NIV, so if you're using a different translation and there's some different words, that's probably why. We're making our way through the book of Acts. We're here in, in chapter 6. Uh, last week, we saw some persecution of the of the first Christians, that persecution is only going to get worse. It's not going to get better from here on out through the book of Acts. So we have some, some church business that we handle here at the beginning of chapter 6, and then we'll get into that kind of theme of persecution again at the end. So we'll jump in here, chapter 6, verse 1. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. So the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, It would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the Spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them. And we will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. The apostles have a problem, and that is that the church is growing exponentially. And the problem with that is that always leads to, to, to administration problems leads to trying to figure out how do, we, how do we handle all these people. The problem we have is that the widows aren't being cared for to the liking of some of the community. Now, we have two groups, as you saw there, the Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews. Let's just do a real kind of cursory explanation for you. So the Hellenistic Jews are Jewish people who have most likely lived outside of, the, of Palestine, out of the Jerusalem area, and they've been influenced by the Greek culture much more than the Hebraic Jews. So Hellenistic Jews would speak Greek, and they've They've been influenced by, by culture, by the Greek culture, the Roman culture, more than the, the Hebraic Jews. The Hebraic Jews have probably just lived around the area of Palestine and Jerusalem. They speak Hebrew, and they hold more closely, tight, they hold tightly to the traditions of the past, where the Hellenistic Jews have probably added some influences, influences in from other places. Um, if you want to think about it, the Hebraic Jews are probably much more conservative in their view of the, of the scriptures and the faith than the Hellenistic Jews are. So there's a difference in, their, in the way in which they practice just Judaism. And so anytime you have a difference in people, for some reason, I, I think we know the reason, it's a sin nature we have in us. For some re- reason, we tend to glorify our differences instead of look at all the things that we have in common with each other. Right? And that's what's happening here. The Hellenistic Jews and the Hebraic Jews have small differences in the way that they practice and believe. But for some reason, as human beings, we tend to take small things and make them really big when they probably shouldn't be. Um, we have the same God, right? Hebraic Jews and Hellenistic Jews, same God. Um, but we're having just some issues in between them. And the Hellenistic Jews have this feeling that, they, that their widows aren't being taken care of as well as the Hebraic Jews are. And so they come to the apostles and say, hey, our widows aren't being cared for like they should be. Uh, something needs to change, right? Something needs to, to get better. I want to uh, read to you out of Gartner's commentary on Acts. He talks about the system the Jewish people had far before Christianity even came around. He says there are two forms of benevolence were practiced by the Jews. Every Friday, relief officers would collect money for the poor in a box and distribute enough for 14 meals to those residents poor in the community. The second form was for poor strangers whose presence was temporary. The relief officers would go house to house to fill a tray with food and drink from which they would distribute to the poor. The description Luke gives here implies that the church had adopted a combination of these methods for daily distribution of food to widows. 
They've taken their past tradition. Jewish people have always cared for the widows, the orphans, the foreigners. Right? The Old Testament was very clear. God was very clear to the Jewish people. Take care of the people who are most in need. Take care of the people who are most likely to be taken advantage of or to go without. And so we see the first Christians have adopted some of that Jewish practice and are caring for these widows. The problem is the widows aren't all being cared for the way that they, they think there should be. So the, the 12 apostles come up with an idea. They gather all the disciples together, all the Christians who aren't yet who haven't yet been called Christians. It says we can't neglect, they say, we can't neglect our ministry, the ministry of the word, in order to take care of these things. We need, to, we need to, to create some more people. We need to find some people that can do this on our behalf. Now, it's, it's really important, I think, as we read verse 2, to understand that the 12 aren't saying they aren't good enough to do this. They've been doing this to this point. What they're saying is it's gotten so big that there's just no way we can do this anymore and still preach like we have been. And so if one of these has to give, they have to give this taking care of the widows to somebody else because the preaching of the word is, is vitally important. Remember, these apostles were eyewitnesses to, to the life, to the ministry, to the death and resurrection of Jesus. Their place is, is vitally important in the success of this movement, the movement that you and I are a part of today. If they start going and doing something else and they neglect the word, then, then this whole movement comes to a screeching halt. Right, the church is done. And Jesus' last commandment he gave them face to face wasn't go and make sure the widows are taken care of or go and make sure the light bulbs have been changed. Right? What was this, the last thing he said? Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And when you do, I'll be with you always to the very end of the age. So the apostle is saying, if we're going to do what Jesus asked us to do, we can't do this as well. Um, the problem with it is far too often people in positions like mine have used this verse to think that they're too good to do things. I mean, just really, right? Um, as a pastor, I am perfectly capable of screwing a light bulb in, I promise, right? I can handle that. I've unclogged toilets before, right? There's a, but the problem with this, and we've seen this not just in the church, but in other places, people take a, take a title, take a position, and they believe that they're too good to do something that's below them. That's not what the apostles are doing here. We need to make that clear. Because people have used this verse for that very purpose. You and I aren't the apostles. I know I, that bums you out a little bit. I, I get it. We're not them, right? Um, there is no job too big or too small in the kingdom. Every job is important. Whether you're up here in front of people or not, that doesn't mean that this up here, being up here right now is no more important than doing anything else in the church. Because if, if, if we don't do it all, then this doesn't really matter. But if Jackie doesn't do her job and there's mice running around at your feet, you probably can't hear a word I'm saying. I'm guessing, right? I mean, you might not be scared of mice, but you probably not really want that thing going up your leg, I'm assuming, um, right? You understand what I'm saying? Every job in the church is important. The apostles aren't saying, hey, guys, this isn't important. Do this. It's a waste of our time. They're saying is we can't do both these anymore. It's gotten so big. It's gotten so, so, so giant in its expectations that we just can't handle this anymore. We need someone else to do this on our behalf. And so what we're going to see here is we're going to see the establishment of the first deacons. That's what you're going to see. That's what happens here in this, in this verse. So if you hold the title of deacon, if you've ever held that title of deacon, this is your verse. This is where it all began, okay? So they gather everyone together. They say, we can't, we can't preach the word of God and we can't wait tables. We can't take care of these people. We need to choose seven men from among you, people who are following Jesus with everything they have, who are, who are known to be full of the Spirit, and to have wisdom. Two very important categories there. 
So the Spirit needs to be inside them. They need to be living in the Spirit. That Spirit needs to fill them and give them that passion and the purpose. And they need to have wisdom. They need to have lived life. Right? You need to have something between your ears. That's the category. That, that's, that's the stipulations. That's what they, we're looking for in the job title. And so, this is what happens. Verse 5, 6, and 7. So this, this proposal pleased the whole group. So the Hebraic Jews, the Hellenistic Jews said, great idea. Great idea. What we, seeing, what we see here from the apostles is good leadership. Right? You have a problem. You have two conflicting groups who are going back and forth. And what do we do? We don't pick sides. We just find a solution to the problem. Say, so, well, let's just appoint seven people. We'll take care of this once and for all. Both sides say, great idea. So they chose Stephen. The scripture says that he's a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Also, Philip, who's going to be those two people, we're going to see later on. So, we're not going to give you a lot of details on them because you're going to see their story in chapter 7 and chapter 8. The rest of these guys, this is the only mention really of them in the scriptures. You're not going to see them anywhere else. Okay? So, we've got Stephen so far and Philip, Procurius, Nicanor, Timian, Parmenas, and Nicholas. All Greek names. Now, Jewish people often in this time period had a Greek name as well, but remember who complained. The Hellenistic Jews, who have a Greek influence, said our widows aren't being cared for. And notice those seven names are all Greek, which would give us the idea that they might all be representative of that Hellenistic group. doesn't mean that they are, because again, Jewish people often had a Greek name and their Hebrew name, but just keep that in mind. So it's like I told you, Stephen, we're going to read about in the rest of this chapter and in, and in chapter 7. Philip, we're going to encounter in chapter 8. The rest of them, we don't hear from for the rest of, of the Scriptures, the New Testament. We have no idea where they go, what they do. I'm, there's, I'm sure there's church tradition that tells us maybe what we think happened, but as far as the Scripture goes, they are silent from there on. Those seven are chosen to, to do this important ministry. Verse 6 tells us, They presented these men to the apostles who prayed, and laid their hands on them. Now the laying on of hands in the New Testament is an important thing. Um, here it has a very special meaning as we're going to see with, specifically with Stephen and Philip. We see that when the apostles lay hands on these men, it's, it's, just, it's different than just in prayer. right? That they're probably bestowing some of their power and authority onto them through this section. You're going to see that with Stephen and with Philip both. And look what happens in verse 7. We had a problem organizations, every, I don't care if it's a business or it's a church or whatever, every one of them has problems because we have people in them. That just comes with the nature, right? If you've worked with people very long, you understand that they're a bit fickle, right? And they sometimes can be rude. They sometimes want their own way, right? Don't look at your spouse right now while I'm describing these things. It's better for you, okay? They can, they can sometimes be stubborn, right? People can be stubborn sometimes. Yeah, I'm one of those people. We want our own way. You, you, understand, you see what I'm saying? Any organization that involves people is going to have issues. Why? Because we're people and we don't always make the right choices. And sometimes we get selfish and myopic and we want our way no matter what. And so the apostles have a problem, right? We have people. There's going to be a problem. They take care of the problem. They handle it in, in a way that, as verse 5 tells us, that everyone said, yeah, that seems like a good idea. And look what happens in verse 7. So the word of God spread. Which means we have a success, don't we? There was a problem. We had a problem. We've handled the problem. We've found a solution. And we've moved on. And guess what? Everything's good. So important 
no matter what the organization is, but specifically I think it's so important for, for us as a church, if we're going to have a unity of purpose, we're going to be on mission for God, is when little problems come, we don't turn them into big problems. And I know that sometimes it's fun, because let's be honest, as human beings, we sometimes like to be dramatic. I know that's shocking to all of you. You've never done that before. You've never been dramatic a day in your life, I know. Sometimes we like to take little things and make them really big. This is a little thing that could have gotten really big because this is how the widows, this is how they lived. This is how they survived. This is their very substance, right? This is not a real small, this problem could have got really, really big really, really fast because we had two different groups who thought that group's getting special treatment and this group isn't getting special treatment, right? And we have this issue and this problem that could have brought this whole movement to the ground instantly. And now you're thinking, well, it's, is it that big of a deal? Churches have split over much smaller things than this, I promise. Over like paint colors and foyer design and all kinds of, if you don't believe me, just Google it. You can get online, you can find all kinds of crazy things, right? Churches have split over much more petty things than this. But we see what happens when you're on mission, when you know what we're, where we're going, right? What the goal is. The goal was to make disciples of all the nations. That's the goal. The goal for us, by the way, is the same. It hasn't changed almost 2,000 years later, the goal hasn't, it's the same. Go and make disciples. And they, they know the goal, and they're on, they're on purpose with the goal. And so this little problem doesn't get any bigger because they know where they're headed. They know what they're supposed to be doing. And so in verse 7, we see we're right back on the task. We're doing what we're supposed to be doing. So the word of God spread. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Whoa. Verse 7 is insane. You can, it's easy to pass over and skip. I get it. But look what happens. They handle the problem correctly. Everything's okay. They get back to doing the job they're supposed to be doing from the get-go. And so the Word of God is spreading. And, and it's not just spreading, but verse 7 tells us it's spreading like wildfire. The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. And a large number of priests, people who at one point been opposed to this movement, are getting on board. They're becoming obedient to the faith. This is what happens when you handle conflict correctly. You know this. You've done it in your, in your life. If you're, if you're married, if you have a spouse, if you have children, you've had to handle conflict. You know what happens when you handle it poorly. You sleep on the couch. When you handle it correctly... You don't have to sleep on the couch, right? I mean, I could, I could, we can go into details, but that's the simple version of it, right? When you've handled it correctly, when you, when you look at it and go, okay, I'm not going to try to be selfish. I'm not going to bring up stuff from the past. Let's just handle this. Things go a little better. When you decide to be petty, when you decide to bring something up from the past or from last argument, what happens? You just made this bigger and bigger and bigger. When conflict is handled well, we learn from it and we grow. When it's handled poorly, it can just deteriorate the very foundation of everything we have, including a marriage or a family or a church or any organization. And here they handled it well, and the church is growing. It's growing leaps and bounds. This movement can't be stopped, which is crazy because there's a whole bunch of people right now who are very powerful who are trying to stop it. And here's one of those examples. Now we're going to Stephen. This is just going to be the introduction to Stephen. We're going to see Stephen in detail, not next week because we have a special message for Easter, but the week after we'll We'll get into the very details of, of Stephen in chapter 7. But here, we're introduced to the idea. Now, he was the first one listed in the, in the, of the deacons earlier, if you remember. And here in verse 8, this is what it says. Now, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, 
performed great wonders and signs among the people. Remember when those apostles laid his hands, their hands on him? What'd they do? Gave him the ability to do what they did. So Stephen is going out and he's putting all that power to work. Verse 9. Opposition arose, however, from members of the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, Jews of Cyrene and Alexandria, as well as the province of Sicilia and Asia, who began to argue with Stephen. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. We have Stephen, who the Scripture tells us is a man full of God's grace and power. It's a great way of being described. He goes and he performs these great works and wonders and signs among the people. Everyone you think, again, would be happy, but we've already saw this, haven't we? We saw what happened when Jesus did this. We saw what happened when the apostles did this. You'd think people who are watching people be healed, people who've never walked before walk again would get excited about that, but for some reason, there's a group who's trying to hold on to power and authority. And so when they see the, these men doing this, they, it, it concerns them, which is, it's, I know it's mind-blowing. It doesn't make any sense. So verse 8, you wouldn't think would cause a conflict, but it does, and verse 9 comes. Opposition comes. And it comes this side, time, not from the, the people we've saw in the past, right? We saw the Pharisees, we saw the Sadducees, this one we have from a specific synagogue, synagogue of the freedmen, and it's exactly what you think it is. Synagogue of the freedmen means at one time these people were either slaves or were probably one generation removed from slavery, and so they met together. They at one point had been slaves. They're, they're, they're free now. They're not slaves, or, or maybe they had parents or grandparents who were slaves, but they are not. And so they're meeting as a synagogue, as a group, and you know the synagogue is the is really the, the hub of all the Jewish community. That's where you went to learn. That's, I mean, that was, that was the hub. That was the community center of, of, of their community. And so they begin to argue with Stephen about all that Stephen is doing and saying. And verse, but verse 10 comes. They could not stand up against the wisdom the Spirit gave him as he spoke. They debate Stephen, and the problem is they're losing. Right? They're losing the debate. And for some reason, again, as human beings, we have this terrible thing that we don't like to lose very much. And look what happens because of their lose, because of their loss. Verse 11, Then they secretly persuaded some men to say, We have heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. So they stirred up the people and the elders and the teachers of the law. They seized Stephen and brought him before the Sanhedrin. They produced false witnesses who testified, This fellow never stopped speaking against this holy place and against the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and change the custom Moses handed down to us. Now that should sound familiar. If you've read through the Gospels before, that should it sound hauntingly familiar, doesn't it? What was Jesus accused of when he was brought before the Sanhedrin? Same things, was he not? This should sound very familiar. We've been down this road before. When they didn't know how to trap Jesus and they'd spent all those, that time trying to, they weren't sure how they were going to get him. What they, would they say? They went straight to blasphemy, right? Well, he talks, about, he talks about, about Moses and God and he said he's going to destroy this temple that we, we've, we had this glorious temple that God told us to build and this Jesus is going to destroy it. You and I understand, of course, that when Jesus talked about the temple, what was he talking about? Himself, right? He wasn't talking about the temple. And, by the way, he did predict it. Just spoiler alert, in AD 70, the temple is destroyed. Jesus prophesied that, so he wasn't incorrect. Like the temple gets knocked down by the Romans in AD 70. Like they have enough and they're done and they, they knock the thing down. So Jesus was actually right. I know it's not surprising to any of you. 
They're doing the same thing they did to Jesus. Which is weird, right? Because human beings, we, we, sh- we have to learn to lose. Right? That's the problem with giving little kids trophies every time they do something. That's the problem, right? Is they don't learn to lose. Sometimes in life you have to learn to lose. Like, hey, you, you lost. It, it happens. That's why we don't give participation trophies out for everything. It's like you did, just because you show up, you get a trophy. Like, that that's not how life works. You guys have been to a job interview before, right? You went there, you got, and they just hired you, right then? Everyone got hired who came? No, that's not how that works. That's not, you go to a job interview, sometimes they say no. And if you've never been taught how to lose, you've never been taught no in your life, it's, kind of, it's, it's a little hard. What we see here from these people is a lack of maturity. Because in verse 10, told us that they're losing the debate. They came, they, they, they have a battle of ideas, and Stephen is getting the best of them. And instead of saying, hmm, maybe he's right, because that's for some reason hard for us to do, Again, wives, don't look at your husbands during this time, right? For some reason, it's hard to admit maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I didn't get it right. The hardest words sometimes to get out are, I'm wrong, I'm sorry. Difficult, I know, for sometimes we're to pass through our lips, but sometimes it's the best thing we could possibly say. Here, instead of doing that, what do we see in verse 11, 12, and 13? They lie. They make up stories about Stephen, things he didn't say, things he's not doing, in order to bring persecution against them. Is that the kind of people we're supposed to be? Remember, these are supposed to be people who are chasing after God with everything they have. They, they don't seem to be showing it right now. Because we can be wrong. Like, it happens. I promise you, I'll be wrong at some point. I'll say something stupid at some point. You can't talk up here for this long without something coming out at some point. I'm going to have to say, hey, I'm sorry. Like, it'll happen one of these days. Hopefully not anytime soon. But one of these days, it'll happen. And we can bury it, right? You can try to cover it up and pretend like it Or you can say, hey, I'm sorry. All I have to do is say, maybe we're wrong. Maybe he's right. But instead of doing that, they go straight to, let's just kill him. That'll make it better. That'll shut him up. I mean, it's, they're, they're not wrong. It will make someone be quiet. But is, is that what we do when our ideas are challenged? When someone challenges with an idea, we just go, eh, I, don't like, I don't like your idea, let's kill you. That's not how that's supposed to work. Like that. But that's where we're headed. Because you've heard this story before, and it didn't end all that well for Jesus, did it? I mean, it was great on our behalf. We got the benefit from it. But we've heard these verses before. They're hauntingly similar to the, the trial that Jesus was supposed to have. The accusations that were brought against him were the same accusations that are brought against Stephen. And we're going to end this verse with a, with a really neat verse. At first, you look at it and you go, okay, what is that supposed to mean? But I think there's some, some, some depth to this. We're going to end today with Acts 6.15. And all it says is this, All who were sitting in the Sanhedrin looked intently at Stephen, and they saw that his face was like the face of an angel. Think of yourself, well, at first you're like, what does that mean, Right? Like, we all think our kids, like, they look like angels, right? When they're sleeping, not when they're awake. When they're sleeping, it's like, when they're quiet, everything's fine. What, is that, what does that mean? And I start, just start thinking about it. And I want to read you something out of the book of Exodus that I think might just apply here. Exodus chapter 34, beginning in verse 29. This is, Moses has been up on the mountain. Mountain that you know is Mount Sinai. Receiving the law of God. 
And this is what happens afterwards. Just, just hear it. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the covenant law in his hands, he was not aware that his face was radiant because he had spoken with the Lord. When Aaron and all the Israelites saw Moses, his face was radiant and they were afraid to come near him. But Moses called to them. So Aaron and all the leaders of the community came back to him and he spoke to them. Afterward, all the Israelites came near him and he gave them all the commands the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses finished speaking to them, he put a veil over his face, but when Whenever he entered the Lord's presence to speak with him, he removed the veil until he came out. When he came out and told the Israelites what he had been commanded, they saw that his face was radiant. And Moses would put the veil back over his face until he went in to speak with the Lord. Moses' face was shining because he was in the very presence of God. And the description that Luke gives us here is that Stephen's face looks like the face of an angel. Now, where do angels hang out? With God, do they not? There's very messengers. I think God's trying to send these people a message. Hey, remember, remember where you came from. Remember the book that you go to synagogue and read and have read to you. Remember that there was a moment in these, remember where these people come from. People that are opposing Stephen are from the synagogue of the freedmen. They're supposed to know what? They're supposed to know the book. If they knew the book, when they saw Stephen's face looking like the face of an angel, they would think to themselves, I've heard this story before. Reminds me of Moses after he had been with God. You would think if you had that kind of wisdom and knowledge to have this here, it's the reason why it's so important that we don't just have it sitting on a shelf, that we've got it here and here, right? And so when we see things like this, we can go, wait a second, I've heard that before. If you, if you pay attention to the New Testament, the New Testament is, is pointing backwards to the Old Testament very regularly. That's why it's so important that we pay attention to both. You can't ignore the Old Testament just because you're a Christian. That's a terrible idea. The Old Testament is pointing to this moment of death, burial, and resurrection. That's what the Old Testament's pointing to. And the New Testament constantly points back saying, hey, look, it's been told the whole time. This was supposed to happen. And here we have a, a story that I think is very similar to the story we see in the book of Exodus. And the, the people who are, he's standing in front of are the Sanhedrin, the most educated people in the community about the book. They're missing it. They missed their chance to go, wait a second. This movement, what's happening in front of us, just might be from God. Because our ancestors told us a story about Moses' face shining too. If they would pay attention to the book, what we're going to see in a few weeks of chapter 7 would never have had to have happened. But it does. Because you don't have this here. You can have it up here all day long. If it hasn't penetrated here, who cares? If you pay attention to the Gospel story, the first people, the first thing to acknowledge Jesus as Messiah, as Lord, is what? In the Gospels, it's a demon. It's the first person that knows Jesus is who he says he is, is a demon. They know this too. It's just not here. It's here. A professor, Mr. Dale Cornett, said there's eight inches between heaven and hell, eight inches between your head and your heart. 
This has to penetrate both. We have to have it here, but it's got to get here if it's going to matter at all. And what we see here from the Sanhedrin and the synagogue of the freedmen is they have the knowledge of it here. It just isn't here, is it? Because if this book was here, murder would never be on the table. It wouldn't be there. Because one of those commandments that Moses brought off that mountain said what? Do not murder. Do not kill. And so if the book was here, they would never go to where they're going to go in chapter 7. For you and I, we've got to make sure this thing, this book, with all the power and might that it carries, all the knowledge and wisdom that can be found there, is up here, of course, but it has to make the journey eight inches down to the heart. It's got to hit us here. We have to connect those two together. We learn it, we memorize it, we understand it, but it goes from here to here if it's going to have any impact in our lives. If we're going to do what Jesus asks us to do, which is go and make disciples of all nations, it's got to hit here. It's got to. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the story of the disciples, your first followers, seeing a conflict, a very important one, of widows not being cared for like they should. They, they see the, the issue, they They come together as one body. They're united in spirit and purpose and they take care of the issue. They're able to move forward. And they move forward with great power and authority, adding to their numbers every single day those who are being saved. God, we're so grateful that they were faithful to your mission to go and make disciples of all the nations. If it wasn't for them, we would not be here today. Father, we thank you for the courage, the wisdom, the knowledge that Stephen displays for us as he stands toe-to-toe with these people who are who are just debating ideas, and Stephen gets the best of them. God, we're thankful for what we're going to see next, the week after next in chapter 7, Stephen's faithfulness to you. God, we ask that you would help us to be people of the Word, that we would take this book, we would fill our minds and our hearts with it, and that our actions and our words would show it. That help us to be lights and salt to this world. That everywhere we go, we are a, a shining and a glorious witness to you and to your power. God, we thank you. And we love you, proud these words in the powerful and healing name of Jesus. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen.